0: To uh, getting on this slideshow, it going? there it goes. Okay, here we go. There we go. All right. As I was asked to speak in this series of Living Hope. Uh, I love the topic of Jesus coming back. It's our great hope, and we sang about grace this morning. I, I got to just tell you, lately, I've been just really reveling in the grace of God. It's been such a topic, and you know, it's out of that grace that we get generous. And so may God just warm your heart to his generosity in pouring grace into our lives. We hunger for it, we sang, right? Do you really hunger for God's grace? The only way to live is in the grace of God. So anyway, when I was asked to speak on this topic by your pastor, Gary, I said, well, I think I'd like to speak on 1 Thessalonians 4. Because this kind of puts the context between the first and second coming of Christ. How do you live in light of the fact Jesus is coming back. And uh, so I began to think about that. And I began to think about maybe we could do it on a baseball motif because this is in July. So I don't know how many of you love baseball. It's kind of one of those loves of mine in the fact that I could never play it well. But I really love the game because it's so filled with uh, the context of life. And I don't know if you've thought about it or not, but uh, as baseball season's here, I love baseball. And what I love is the action between the pitcher and the batter. Now, this ball is special to me. This is going to test all the baseball purists here today. But see, I started cheering for baseball when it was no Blue Jays around, no Blue Jays were around. So I'm a Detroit Tiger fan. I know that's terrible, and some of you can all go boo, and that's okay. But part of the reason is we lived in Western Ontario, so it was the only thing you could get on the radio. WJR, and then I went to college in Michigan. Well, you gotta cheer for the Tigers then. And when I was in seminary in Tennessee, it was the only station I could get baseball games on. WJR, clear signal, right to Tennessee. I could listen to the ball games. And it was a distraction. Well, one of the heroes in the Tigers history uh, is the team of 1984. When they went 35 and 5 and won going right from the start to the end, never were beaten in any series. And uh, this ball is from 1984. And it's signed by the manager of that year, his is Sparky Anderson, some of you remember. So I, don't, I, I just want to declare my baseball heritage, okay? Which is not as a player, but as someone who loves to watch. And you see this little ball here, these pitchers throw this thing... between 85 and 95 miles an hour, some up to 100 miles an hour. I don't know if you've ever gone to one of those amusement parks where they say, see if you can throw the ball, right? Have any of you ever done that? Let me see your hands if you've ever done that. You ought to try it. I've done that, and as fast as I can throw this silly thing, is about 55 miles an hour. And it just about throws my arm out of shape for a week. And then a guy stands at the plate, and he's got to hit this thing, and he's only got 66 feet, in which to make a decision. And so they watch the pitcher's hand because when it comes out of his hand, they can tell by the way he makes his hand move what kind of a pitch it's gonna be. And uh, what's even interesting is if it's a fastball, it still has movement on it. So there's, every time that ball's coming and there's movement on it. Do you ever feel like that in life? Like you've gotta step up to the plate and, and make action happen and It just seems like you're always striking out. Anybody feel like that sometimes? It just seems like I just don't happen to hit that crazy ball that's coming in. Well, here's the interesting thing. In this chapter, I think there are at least four kinds of pitches that uh, Paul talks about here, and they're all thrown at us by Jesus. Have you stepped up to the plate and said, Jesus, I'm in this game. Throw me your pitch, and I'm going to do my very best to hit it out of the park. I really want to do something that honors you. So that's the idea today, okay? And if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll walk through the chapter and just see what God says to you. My challenge this morning is pick your pitch and hit it, all right? Most of us are better at one pitch or another. And I played a lot of fast pitch softball and was pretty good at that. And that was also tough because there you only had 60 feet the ball. But what I'm saying is, I don't know which of these four pitches is going to touch your heart today. And I'm talking to all that I'm looking at and talking to the people online. I, I hope that you'll say, dear God, which of these pitches you're throwing at me am I actually going to take seriously and do my best to hit it out of the park, okay? That's the question today. So if you've got your Bibles there in First Thessalonians chapter 4, this book, it's very interesting, This is a letter written by Paul to the church at Thessalonica, a church that he founded in his second missionary journey. He'd been, of course, to Philippi, and then, of course, you know that story in jail, got kicked out. They head down to Thessalonica, and he was there for between, all we know is three to four weeks of ministry, three Sabbath days, so maybe four weeks long. And, of course, created such a stir, they kicked him on their way, and he headed down to Berea. So this, this was not a long time that he was there, He had a lot of information to cover. You understand that, right? Just think of all you had was a pastor for four weeks. And then you're on your own. You'd have a lot of questions, right? You'd have a lot of things. Well, you didn't cover that topic. Well, one of the topics that didn't get well covered was how to live life. In fact, that Jesus is coming back. And so we'll see that as we go along. So here's this ministry that he has for three to four weeks. Then he goes to Berea. And then trouble in Berea because people came from Thessalonica they sent him on his way down to Athens and to Corinth and he then gets Timothy to come back and give a report so Timothy comes from Thessalonica meets Paul and says here's a report on how that church that you started is doing so that's the context this is the letter that Paul wrote that was hand delivered back get the idea so just think of if you were a young church you only had your pastor for a few weeks he's gone you miss him terribly he writes a letter and the word gets out. I always wonder about this, a little aside, but growing up in the Mennonite community, when they'd have a barn raising, and how 200 guys would show up, and they never had telephones. How did that work? I always wondered about that. I got to participate in one of those, and I go like, how did they all show up, and the, the ladies all brought the same food? Now, how did that work? Well, that's like this. The word got around, however they did it, and I guarantee church was full that day. Don't you believe? There's a letter from Paul. And he's got stuff to say. So this wasn't just passing information. This was heart language from their beloved pastor, evangelist, back to them. you get the idea? And he has something really important to say that I think helps us understand today. He brought, Timothy brought a very encouraging report. And, uh, but he said there's a few areas they need some help in. And so Paul writes to help them improve. And Paul's positive encouragement that he leads into is found in chapter 3, verse 9 to 13. I'm not going to read it all, but Paul basically says as he leads into chapter 4. Now remember, there's no chapters. It was just one letter. No verses, no chapters. But Paul basically said, my heart is so filled with joy. It's overwhelmed with joy because of your faith. You're hanging in there. Remember, there's a lot of persecution going on. So much that they'd kick Paul out of town. And he says... uh, I desire to see that that you would continue to advance. That's my goal. And then he prays for them. He prays that the Lord would make their love increase and strengthen their hearts. And so that leads us, friends, to the big idea of this message. The big idea is, you're doing well, let's keep improving. You know, that's the Christian life, right? It's a word of encouragement and a word of exhortation. You've made progress, but don't stay there. It's like Neil just said. You've made progress You're giving. Don't stay there. Move forward. Take another step. And so there's four key areas, and I've named them after pitches, okay? So the big idea of the first pitch to continue this baseball motif, Paul urges people to step up to the plate and face the pitcher and hit the ball. Now, it could be a single, could be a home run, could be something in between, but this is the first pitch. And I call it the curveball. And he says, live a pleasing life. Now let's just read the passage of verse eight, eight verses, and you'll get the, the idea. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. There's the key. We taught you how to please God as in fact you are living. So you're doing pretty well. But now we ask you and urge you. Ask is a gentle word. Urge is a little stronger. Here's what we're saying. We taught you how to please God. You're doing it. But now we urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Oh, let's move on. For you know what instruction we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will. Anytime the scripture says something is God's will, you ought to mark that down. It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is why I call it a curveball. He's saying, I taught you how to please God. You're doing it. Pick it up. And here's going to be the test. This is the curve. No one expected this was going to be the test. That in God's plan and purpose that they would increase their pleasing to God, they would improve their sanctification... And as God throws in the pitch, he says, and here's the curve. It's in the area of your sex life. Now, how many of us really like to hear about that? I remember a few years ago, you asked me to come and do a message that was pretty honest. And, uh, but it's all through the scripture. This area of sanctification, which is the will of God. Paul says, let's pick it up. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get called to obey... I have a gut reaction that I'm very unhappy about. Do you have the same gut reaction? When someone says you ought to do this, I always want to ask, who says? Do you ever feel that way? So when someone throws a pitch in a baseball game and the umpire says ball or strike, I want to know who said that. What was the umpire? And that's what we're saying here. God's throwing you a pitch. And he's saying, I am the one that evaluates I am asking you to obey. Now, I don't know if your reaction is godly or ungodly at this moment, but (laughs) I'm telling you, there's really no option here. Um, For instance, we've recently gone through, we're going through this whole pandemic. Has it bugged you how many times the rules have changed? Right? It's bugged me, I'll admit. But I always ask, well, who said that? Was it the health authorities? Was it the government? Was it my neighbor? Was it someone who thinks they know what they're doing? It's that kind of thinking. Now, see, here's the deal. God's at the center of the universe. Do you agree with that? This is God's universe. We all agree with that, right? This is God's big deal. He's building his kingdom. My problem is, because I'm a sinner, I want to build my own kingdom. It's about me. I'm at the center of my universe. So we've got a clash. Always got to clash between God and me. And when I live in that realm of self-centeredness, that's at the core of all my sin. Always. That's what creates all the dysfunction in my life. Because when I sin, I'm saying I don't like God's orders. I don't like the fact he made this universe, he made me the way I am, and he put down the rules of how to live a life that pleases him. So can we be honest this morning together? We all struggle here. Because we're all sinners. Amen? There's, it may not be in the area that he talks about here, because this kind of surprises us that he would use this as the test, right? Wouldn't it have been better if he just talked about the way we give our money or the way we treat our kids? But he gets pretty personal because, see, this is the core of our being. He made us sexual beings, but he put rules on it. And he said, okay, let's just test how obedient you are to me. We'll talk about this. And then I want to say he talks about something that I really wrestle with. And that is, he talks about pleasing. And I'd like to suggest to you that pleasing is a higher form of obeying. You've all heard the story of the little boy who was being disciplined by his mother for doing something wrong, probably eating cookies that he shouldn't eat. She sent him up to him, sat, put him in the corner of the room and said, sit there, Johnny, until I come and let you go. So, you know, what mothers are like. He's sitting there, he's sitting there. She thinks, oh, poor kid. This isn't, I was too tough on him. I'll go and check. So she looks in the room and there's Johnny sitting in the corner. So she says, Johnny, I'm so proud of you. You're sitting in the corner. He says, yeah, I'm sitting in the corner but I'm standing up inside. You see, he was obeying but not with a pleasing attitude, right? You think of the story of Jonah, right? God told him to do certain things. He refused. God works it out that he gets a second chance. He still isn't pleasing. In fact, when the Ninevites repent, he goes into a little self-pity party. Are you like that in your life? God gives you a rule, you say, okay, I'll obey it, but I don't like doing that. You gave me such a wonderful illustration today, Neil, I couldn't believe it. When God touches on the shoulder and says, become more sacrificial giver, what are you going to do about it? Okay, I'll give more. Or are you going to say I cannot believe the grace God's given to me and what he's put in my hands to give. You see, there's a big difference between obeying and obeying with a happy heart. I remember when I was a youth pastor many, many years ago, we sang a little chorus. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Doing exactly what the Lord commands, doing it happily. I hated that part. Action is the key. Do it immediately. Joy you will receive. That was also hard to stomach. Because I always want to kind of argue with God. Oh, I got a few months to figure that out. No, he said it, I do it. With a happy heart. So that's what he's saying. You're doing well, but here's the thing. And I want to test how obedient you are, friends. This is Paul talking to the Thessalonians. On behalf of God, we're going to test in this area of your sexuality. Now, here's what I know. Every one of us in this room, everybody watching online, all of us are constantly making decisions about who we're going to please. That's what life is. Life is a series of decisions. Constantly, you're making decisions. In fact, you're making a decision right now. Are you going to listen to Marv or not? You're going to turn me off. That's fine. You turn me off. That's fine. Doesn't hurt me. But we're making decisions. But here's what I want you to know. We're constantly making decisions about who we're going to please. At any given moment, it's either pleasing myself, or pleasing my wife, or pleasing the boss, or pleasing the teacher, or pleasing the neighbor, or pleasing, right, the policeman. I'm making decisions based on who I want to please at that moment. My fundamental belief, friends, is this. If you make God the one you're pleasing, all those other things will find their rightful place. Amen? Amen. Wouldn't it be great if every moment of every day as we're living our life, we'd say, what would please Jesus? Done. That would make you a better husband. That would make you a better wife. That'd make you a better mother or father. That'd make you a better employee. Do I hear an amen? Yeah, see, it's a little hard because you know that's pretty convicting, right? Most of us live life constantly thinking, what would please Marv? And, of course, that just gets us so off base. Well, here he picks on this, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. The test, the curveball was sexuality. That's where he's going to test me in my pleasing. That's what he says. And you can read what he says there. It's some pretty straight stuff. Don't be like the pagans. Don't be like people who don't believe God. Hey, friends, I'm telling you, the church is being invaded by ungodly thinking on this topic. You remember when I was here that time, I talked about pornography. It hasn't got better. And he says this is his will. This is the will of God that you live a sanctified life in this area. You grow in holiness. This is an important way to please God, not yourself. Romans 12, 1 and 2 present your bodies a living sacrifice that involves all of you including your sexuality and then he talks about the fact that sometimes we get into this business of defrauding, taking advantage I used to see that all the time at the college where a guy would tell a girl he loves her because he had an agenda, right? He didn't really love her he just wanted some action. And then he would do some things that were inappropriate, and then he'd go on another girl. He just defrauded that sister. And I've seen girls do the same thing to guys. Do you understand that? When you defraud someone, when you take advantage, it means you're going after something that's not rightfully yours. And what's rightfully in this topic, and I'll just say this, sex outside of marriage is wrong. Only in marriage because then there's a connected covenant before God in the relationship. So there's the first thing. How are you doing in that area? Okay, well, let's go on to the next pitch. I see my time's getting away. This is a fastball. Now, see, fastballs, I call this a fastball because this opportunity comes so fast all the time, you really can't plan it. You have to just respond out of what's in your heart. And this is about loving people how many of you have a little bit of room to grow in this area of your life? You know, like, that's me. I, I could use a little help in this area. And this pitch comes at you out of the blue, no opportunity to plan, and it's fast and furious all the time. Do you understand how many times in a day you're being called on to love somebody? I think it's the most common challenge we face. To actually love people. But first, love is God. And I'm asking you, how are you doing as God throws a fastball at you and says, love me? Are you saying, I'll step to the plate and hit that one. Do you love him enough to spend time with him every day? Do you love him enough to actually obey what he's asking you to do? Do you love him enough to do the rest of this? When he says, it moves from loving him to loving others. ooh, that's where it gets really personal. You know, I, I'm an elder in a church there's some people at church are so hard to love. It's unbelievable. I know that wouldn't be here at Wallenstein. I know that. I know that. When I was a pastor, I followed a man who'd been there 15 years. And, uh, people loved him. It was a really tough act to follow, to be honest with you. Marvelous speaker. And he was very experienced. I was a young kid just starting out as a lead pastor. And, uh, I remember calling him one day and saying, you know, there's these people the church, and they just are driving me crazy. And I'll never forget, he said, Marv, he said, those are God's special children. (laughs) Uh, Are there any special children here at Wallenstein that are a little hard to love? (laughs) Well, they might be right in your own family, I don't know. But this is the call here. He says, and it's right in the text there, if you notice. Now, about your love for one another. Oh, boy, if the curveball wasn't enough, here comes the fastball. He'd apparently talk to them about this. Okay, because he's picking up the topic. We do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. That's the word Philadelphia. This isn't agape love. This is brotherly love. This is shared love between two people. Kind of a mutuality to it. Taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Oh, that sounds pretty good. But then he says, we urge you, dear friends, to do so much more. And to make it your imbi- oh, excuse me, we'll just stop there, because that's the next pitch. So how are you doing in this loving other people? Are you hitting a home run? Are you hitting a double? Are you hitting something in between? What's going on in your life? Do you really love other people? He says here, brotherly love is learned behavior. How much are you letting God, the Spirit, teach you about this? Are you open every day to hear God say, here's how you could love others more? This is really a way you could do that. Are you open to that? Are are you fed up with loving people? They can wear you down. I'll believe that. Nobody can tell you that. But then he says, here, you're doing pretty well on this one. This is not one that, uh, you know, you've failed on. But I just got to throw you this fast pitch. There's more to do in this area, and he talks about it in two areas the the, the two dimensions, intensity and extent. He says, "Do you see that in the text there? Urge you to do it more and more. Whoops, sorry. I think the intensity issue is goes right back to uh, the original instruction of, Je- of, of uh, Moses to the people of God to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. Deuteronomy 6, 4. And then, of course, Jesus talks about when he was here. And then John I mean, Jesus, what he said, love everybody like I love you. Well, that's a step up, right? I can love some people the way I can love them, but to love them like Jesus loves them? Yeah, that's a little story that I have to work on. And then John comes along the disciple who Jesus loved, and John says, hey guys, don't just talk about love, do something about it. Remember that in First John 3? Love in deed and in truth. So what you say, I love people, prove it by what you do. In this last few months, could you say to the Lord, you threw me a few fastballs about loving people, and I stepped up to the plate, and I hit it. This is how I demonstrated that I love you and I love other people. This is what I did. That's what the passage is really saying. How could you say I did that? This is how I did it. No one could ever say, I didn't move forward in this area. I stepped it up. I'm sure your church has done some wonderful things. Were you part of those? Maybe there's more they'd like to do, and they need more money to do it. There's a good reason to give, right? Step up to the plate. I want to be part of a team that's loving this community. Because see, that's the second part. Don't just love in your sense of intensity, but love in the extent in which you do it. He said you're doing it through all the the whole of Macedonia, which was a province, um, a province that's still there in Greece. But he said, increase it, want it more and more. Find other areas in Macedonia or think beyond. How about other places in the world? I think it's so much easier for us to think about ways to love people in India than it is to love my next door neighbor. Amen? What are you doing? You should be doing both. Amen? Both. Loving your neighbor and loving the people in other places in the world. I'm fortunate as a member of the MentorLink community. We have people all over the world. And uh, it's been my delight and my wife's delight to step up our commitment to some of the brothers and sisters I know and to say, we don't need that much money. We can send some gifts. You know, I found this really interesting. One of the best ways to send gifts to people you know and trust, okay, is through Western Union. There's Western Union offices ever in the world. Call your friends, say, I'm going to send uh, some money to you by Western Union so you can survive. There's a brother of mine in Togo that, I mean, right in the middle of this, his wife came down super ill. They couldn't afford the medication. Now, how did I find that out? Well, it's just because we love each other and we talk. So I'm not here to promote myself friends I'm telling you I'm in this game with you we're all being thrown some fastballs it comes all the time there is more need out there than you can meet amen but there are needs that God's touching your heart about and the question is when he touches your shoulder and say here's a way you can demonstrate love you stepping up to the plate or not that's the question Well, i go and tell some other stories, but the time's gone. So let's get to the next pitch here. A slider. Oh, my goodness. I don't know if, how much you know about sliders in baseball, but these are faster than a curve, but not as fast as a fastball, and they come right at you, and you think it's a fastball, and then at the last minute, right, when it's close to the plate, it moves sideways, down, usually down. It's one of the toughest pitches to hit. Very hard. And... Uh, This one, the first was, you know, more obedience to God, right? Step up our obedience in a pleasing way. Next one was, let's step up our love for others. Now it's, let's step up our self-discipline. And that's why this one's hard. And he just fires a slider at you and says, how about a little more disciplined life? This, This in many cases is a strikeout pitch. And this could happen to you too, unless you take what he says. Look what it says here and to make it your ambition this is in verse 11 to lead a quiet life you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody this was a problem in the church that had arisen after Paul left and that was people were saying we're going to talk about this the last one real quickly the Lord's coming back so why should I bother working right if he's coming back I'll just kind of Let other people pay my grocery bill, and I'll do stuff for Jesus, or I'll just become lazy and all that. This was a real problem. It's in first, it's in second. That's only three. In a couple places, I'll refer to. But what Paul says here is, I want you to step it up in this area. I want you to live a less frantic life. That's an undisturbed life. What what disturbs you? If people watched your life for a while, would they say, this guy's at peace with God? He and God are in good terms. See, that's one of the areas in which we can get disturbed when we know that God's saying stuff to us and we aren't following. We get disturbed internally. Are you at peace with yourself? Or are you disturbed? A less frantic life. See, what people do when they aren't happy about their relationship with God or their internal relationship, they turn to all kinds of distractions. Would you agree with that? They start doing all kinds of stuff so they don't have to think about the realities that are the really important ones. So they get caught up. Now that's been a problem with the pandemic. They haven't been able to do as much as they normally do. But they get caught up with all kinds of distractions. And frantic. Trying to stop the ache in the soul from being as strong as it is. And then he says, none of that, but let's live a thoughtful life, a balanced life, minding my own responsibilities and not being a busybody about others. I, I can't tell you how many people have an agenda for my life. <laughs> Do you have people like that? They've always got something I should be doing. You're probably thinking that about me right now, but hopefully it's God that's speaking to you. But it's so easy to start thinking about all the things other people ought to do and not looking after your own responsibilities. That's what Paul's talking to them here. He said, listen, you've got responsibilities, look after them, and don't worry about the other people. Don't go around trying to tell everybody else how they should live their life. And then he says, "But we're supposed to live energetically, an active life. We're to work so we can contribute to others and to society. In 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul said, uh, anybody unwilling to work shouldn't eat. That's an amazing one. My dad used to quote that to me all the time, right? We had a retail grocery store. You want to eat, Marv? Get to work. That was always said in a loving environment. But I got the message. But remember the text says anyone unwilling to work. I know some people can't, we understand that. Some people, for various reasons, cannot work. Okay, that's fine. Then we're responsible to help them. But if you can work, you should work. And the reason you should work is so that you can look after your own needs and have some for others. That's what he says. How are you doing on that one? And he says the point is it it wins the respect of outsiders. I have neighbors. I'll uh, tell you two quick stories. Back a number of years ago when we were in the very depths of trying to get uh, heritage set up in Cambridge, I was busy as crazy trying to raise money and doing this. And uh, we have a neighborhood coffee time. I was with them on Saturday morning. We meet 7.30 on Saturday mornings. Now, all this lasts while we've done it online, but now again we can do it outside. And this is a group of 10, 12 people who meet every Saturday morning from 7.30 to 9.00. And we talk about everything. I'm the only believer in the group. The rest are all unbelievers. They keep me in touch with society. Many of them highly educated, very thoughtful. These are not off the wall people. You know one of the things that's driving them crazy? And they've talked to me about it. They read stories of pastors that are leading their churches to rebel against the guidelines of the government. And I can tell you, they aren't impressed. Those pastors aren't winning the respect of the outsiders. They may be winning the respect of some rebellious Christians. That's one example. That same group, early in the time we are meeting, we have a little subgroup, the men. We get together and we do stuff. Always eat. You know, it's always part, like, you know, play around the golf and eat. Watch a movie and eat. Go bowling and eat, you know, something like that. Always got to eat. And the one neighbor... Very intelligent guy, he's the one that sets it up. And so one time they wanted to do something and he asked me three times if I had a date open to do it. And after the third time when I said no, you know what he said to me? This was a life changing conversation. He said, Marv, I would never want to live your life. I said, why Ted? He said, you're way too busy. See, I was too busy to actually have relationships with my unsaved neighbors. That's what God said to me. That doesn't make any sense, does it? I wasn't winning their respect, that's for sure. But the other reason we work is so we aren't dependent. We actually please God as a steward of the resources. Remember, you don't own anything. You don't own your house, your car, your kids, your salary. You own nothing, amen? Amen? You're a steward. It's all God's. And the question is, are you stewarding what God's put in your trust so you can love others, you can contribute sacrificially to those in need? That's in my notes. I didn't make that up, Neil, since you got up here and talked. How many of you actually have a budget you're living by? There's a good starting spot. There's way more money going through your hands than you know unless you have a budget. slider. boom. Many of us strike out on that one. Well, the last, and you know this one very well, I'm sure you've heard about it, I want to talk to you about, is a change-up. This is to live expectantly. And this is that beautiful passage that most of us know about from First Thessalonians 4. I'll just read the first part and the last. He says, you know, some of you are really concerned about what's happening to people that have died. So he's, Paul's been there. People have been saved. He hears from Timothy, brother and sister so and so have died, and the people want to know what's happened to them. And so he's going to tell them, This is what happened. He said, I, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. So Christians who've died, so you do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Then he talks about what we believe Jesus died, he rose again. He's going to come back. He's going to bring all those who've died with him. And then those of us who are on the earth, we're going to rise to meet them in the air. And it's beautiful. So shall we ever be with them forever. We'll be with the Lord and with them forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The reason I call this a change-up is because uh, it's a surprise pitch. Very few pitchers are good at it, and they almost never use it. It's one that they kind of keep when they got the batter set up, and then they think he's thinking for fastball or slider, they throw a changeup. And and friends, this is the surprise, right? Everything I've said to you this morning only makes sense if you understand Jesus is coming back. It's only thing, and so he throws this kind of surprise. We need to have more anticipation in our life, friends. That's the point. Need to think more about the fact Jesus is coming back. He could come back right now. He could come before we finish the amen and the service. Do you live like that? Do you respond to all these other things he said with that in mind? It's a surprise. Are you watching for him? Or are you going to be surprised when he shows up? Here's the great thing death is not the end of the story. So praise God. We don't grieve. As those who have no hope. You know, when I was preparing this, I thought of Pastor Ron. I still grieve. It's almost two years ago, right? Every time I drive by that Williams by Costco, I thank God. I miss our coffee times. We loved each other. You've got people in your life like that too, right? Some of you had to go through the grieving of death and not be able to be there when your loved ones died. But praise God, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Amen? We grieve with hope. We grieve with the promises of God. We grieve knowing it's not the end of life. We grieve knowing he's going to make everything new. We still grieve. And you must grieve. Don't rush past it. And some of you, grieving is going to hit you months after the event happened. That's okay. But we never grieve without hope. And the reason for that is, amen? Say it with me out loud. Jesus is alive and is coming again. Do you believe that? Or is that going to be a surprise for you? like a change up. Whoa, what just happened? And we'll be united with Jesus and with our loved ones. And this is the walk-off home run that wins the game of life. Amen? I don't know what pitch spoke to the day, but would you just ponder that as you leave this morning? Jesus is Jesus saying to you, um, a little more pleasing obedience would be good. Love more and more. Live a measured life and do it in light of Jesus' return. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for what it does for us, as it warms our hearts and teaches us truths that make life worth living. I pray that this message, I know it spoke to me in preparing it. I pray that it would speak to all of our friends here in this room and those online. Lord, we look forward to that day. What a home run. We will be with Jesus. Heaven is our home. Eternity is our hope. May it be today.